You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse 3 Triple R FM's weekly foray into the future and uh, fingers crossed assessment therein. Bushy's my name and I'm joined in the studio by Adam Grubb. How art thou? Pretty good, Bushy. How do you do? You, I do good. Jed McCartney, panel beater. Hello. Hello. Adam, why don't you introduce our guest? Uh, we have fourth time return guest number one champion free coffee apocalypse guest yeah next time you get a free coffee on your stamp card dr samuel alexander welcome back sam thank you gents now let me just remind folks who you are you are the founder of the simplicity institute which is an educational and research group which envisions a simpler way of life one that doesn't fuck up the world quite so rapidly but is quite pleasant to live in I think I wrote that last time. That's not your spiel. Um, he not is a research fellow, fellow with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute and a lecturer with the Office of Environmental Programs at Melbourne Uni. Is this still as of one year ago? Mm-hmm. Still true? Uh, he is the author of innumerable books and papers, including Entropia, Life Beyond Industrial Civilization, Just Enough is Plenty, Throws Alternative Economics, and one that we talked about one year ago, Deface the Currency, The Lost Dialogues of Diogenes, the old dirty bastard of Greek philosophy, as we <laughs> coined him. But a fascinating character who uh, had things to say about um, simple living. You have a new essay. It's called... Carbon Civilization and the Energy Descent Future. It's not out yet, but it was very much like a small book, which is co-authored with one Joshua Floyd. And we're also going to talk to you tonight about that and your backyard experiments in creating energy from food waste in the form of biogas. Anyway, Hmm. once again, after that long intro, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, Hmm. we're going to kickstart with the biogas conversation, yeah? Yeah, we are. We're going to sort of start with uh, a thing that you're doing and then a little bit later in the show talk about why. So, mm-hmm. uh, can we, so first, of, first things first, um, how, did, what, how did you sort of first hear about this wonderful invention? Maybe if you can give it a little bit of a rundown on how you first got onto it. Sure. So surfing the net, as you do, mm. I, uh, about two years ago, came across a crowdfunding campaign for a domestic home biogas unit and thought it looked interesting, uh, but it wasn't yet in production. Mm. Uh, Came back to it two years later and saw that it was available, Mm -hmm. Uh, did some research into it and uh, purchased a a unit, which I set up about three or four months ago, and it's been operating in... uh, my suburban backyard. Mm-hmm. There's not too many of these around, I take it? Uh, very few in the developed world, so to speak. Um, home biogas or domestic biogas has been used in the developing world extensively in recent decades. Apparently there are 27 million units in China. In China alone, yeah. Uh, 4 million units in India. Mm-hmm. But almost 
non-existent in you know the the West, so mm. to speak. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's a new uh, development, but potentially uh, a great source of uh, clean, renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so what exactly are we talking about when you say the word biogas? So biogas uh, is created when organic matter biodegrades in anaerobic conditions, which is in the absence of oxygen. Is this like when they say you put your food scraps in the bin and it ends up in landfill and then it methane off gases? Sure, which is terrible. Yep. Uh, but if you can capture that gas uh-huh. uh, and you filter out some of the gases that you don't want in it, like hydrogen sulfide, it can be used as a clean source of energy. It, it, it's mm. combustible. Yeah. Um, and so biogas can be used as a cooking fuel uh, for heating water, for heating space. Um, it can, and, uh, at a commercial level, be compressed as a vehicle fuel. And uh, at a commercial and industrial level, it can also capture the methane from human waste, effluent, mm. as out at Werribee. So there are various forms of it, but the the, the, the innovation that this um, kind of the home biogas unit is is that it, it allows sort of suburbanites mm. Uh, mm. to 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 it to do it at a household level. Yeah, can you paint a picture for us of how you're currently uh, engaged with it? Like you know what sure, what the so week looks like with you and the biogas builder? Yeah, uh, so it's about a meter deep, meter sixty five long, meter twenty seven high. So it's Significant without being mm-hmm. unmanageable. What's it's it made a, of? So the bottom of it is a 650-litre digester of water. Mm-hmm. Above that is a gas bag. On top of the gas bag are 80 kilograms of sand, which when, play, when the gas bag gets filled, the sand provides the pressure yeah. through the gas pipe to your cooking device. Okay, right. I think I get it. And so as it's filling up the bag like a balloon, it's got a weight on it that it has to mm-hmm. lift and so that mm-hmm. that goes back down again as you use it. Yeah, okay. and so there's a, a inlet basin at one end mm. where you put in your food scraps uh, that goes into the digester where it biodegrades anaerobically, creates methane, carbon dioxide, and some limited tiny amounts of hydrogen sulfide. Mm-hmm. It gets filtered. Which into- doesn't sound like it would smell very nice, but maybe we can come back to that. No. <laughs> yeah. that, that is why we were joking it's... You know, sounds like biogas sounds a bit like something well, we might create from our own digestion, and that includes exa- methane and s- sure, um, like hydrogen thinking sulfide. of it as a stomach. Yeah, you know, you, yeah, we yeah. jokingly call it the fart machine. Yeah, uh, yeah. we've since okay. named her Betty, Betty Biogas. So in the morning, our household goes, "So somebody fed Betty." Oh, you know, nice. Uh, probably a better name, Betty, as well than fart, machine. fart machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so and, and so how many? So you say how many kilos of food waste does your house generate? So I started by. Uh, I've been putting in two kilograms a day. Yep. I started with that, but we were producing too much gas, which is a funny too problem much. to have. Yeah, right, so yeah. I started putting in one and a half kilograms, and even that, I think, is more than we need. Now, mm. you might be thinking one and a half kilograms is quite a lot of food waste, and it is, and our frugal household create m- maybe 100 grams or 200 grams a day. Mm. So I've talked to my lovely neighbours yeah. who, who uh, drop off their food waste to me, and mm-hmm. they're genuinely happy to be contributing to this cause Mm -hmm. and once a week i bike down to the coburg market jump in the food waste bin yep where you can imagine are disturbing amounts of uh potential yeah (laughs) almost an infinite supply of 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 yeah fruit and vegetables that there are Wanting to get rid of, so I gratefully yeah. take that. I'm sure you must find the odd one where you go, that carrot looks all right. Mm, have a little bite. <laughs> yeah. Is this the same sort of food waste you'd put in your worm farm? Is, is there, like, you have to filter the food waste? Not when at I say all. filtered, you have to be selective. 
only insofar as you wouldn't want to put in too much citrus. Uh, you don't want to put bones in. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but you can put meat and fish in if there is that around. Yeah, right. um, and they say don't put too many, too much leaves or grass. So primarily food waste because it has more calorific value. Mm. What, what about oils like you know cooking oil and things like that? It's all good. Yeah, all good. You just again don't want to put too much in it. Yep. But in yep. terms of what comes uh, out of a household um, mm. cooking session, like the drizzle that's fine. from a salad bowl, the no drama. From, yeah, yeah, cool. So, so these are things that would normally go in your compost. What happens to all the solids? Uh, so it, basically in that 650-litre digester, that's when it sort of all starts biodegrading and it's like a it's an input-output system. So as you put in, say, two litres of um, food waste, mm-hmm. two litres of rich, nutrient-dense sludge comes oh. out the other end. So okay. although our compost heap is no longer looking as good as it used to, uh, we're actually getting more and better compost or, or fertiliser from this unit. So yeah. if two litres comes out, it's, it's a little bit too uh, rich to put straight onto your garden. So we um, yep. put in, say, about a one to five ratio, yep. which gives us about 10 litres of fertiliser a day. Wow. So not only is oh, this yeah. saving us money by providing all of our home cooking needs, mm. essentially, um, we also no longer need to import mm. sort of the sheep manure or the cow manure yeah. or the fertiliser, the sea sole, yep. to keep the veggie and, and the and fruit. What do you got it hooked up to, or shouldn't I ask? The council's uh, not uh, listening. Uh, <laughs> I've got it hooked up to a biogas cooker. Okay, so oh, you've got to get part us... of the kit. No, no, uh, it came separately, so, uh, but uh, yeah. Accessory. So, so it's essentially like a, one that you would take camping mm-hmm. so it's stainless steel one looks nice yep um and eventually I'll, I'll probably split the line so we have two yep. you know if you're cooking a pasta sauce mm-hmm. and you want to cook the pasta yeah mm-hmm. having two will be useful so far we've been managing with one mm-hmm. um i've also got a um hot water unit i haven't hooked it up yet because it's only i've only been cooking on the mm. biogas for three months or so mm-hmm. but uh again sometimes you can, uh, when you go glamping if there are some of you out there yeah. who go glamping you can get a hot water unit that you can hook up to a conventional compressed gas bottle mm. and hook it up to a mains u- unit and then have hot water while you're camping now this is a biogas unit, mm-hmm. so it's the same idea that you use the biogas to heat the hot water yeah. Um, and, yeah, another way to get a renewable energy source or service mm. from biogas. So, so you've been using it for three years. Three months. Three months, sorry, yep. I meant to say, which is the warm season. Yep. I know these things are popular in tropical climates. Is it, how's, mm. Do you have any idea how it's going to perform through winter? Okay, so, so far, I've, as I said, been putting in one and a half kilograms a day and on average it's provided 36 minutes of cooking. So I've yeah. been taking notes on it all just because I'm interested in what's yeah, going yeah. in and what's coming out. That's actually pretty impressive. Yeah, which is, more, as I say, more <coughs> cooking gas than we need. Sometimes mm. we're like, what should we cook tonight? Let's cook something biogas intensive so we don't... <laughs> because when the bag gets full, it will burp out. Methane, which you don't yeah. want to do. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, that's a question I want to get to in a minute. So, yeah. yeah. Um, now, as you say, it works best when it's warm. Um, and in Melbourne, it's, it's been a good warm summer, so it's been functioning very well. As I say, I've only had it for three months, so how it operates in winter remains to be seen. Mm. Um, I've got a solar hot water unit, so if necessary in winter, I could be heating that water through the solar during the day and putting, you know, 
20, 30, 40 litres of hot water into it mm. to keep it at temperature. I've also built a simple but seemingly effective greenhouse around this unit. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that also keeps um, it, it warm in winter. Like water mm-hmm. loses heat quite slowly. Yeah. So if I can capture it in, a, in a, an effective greenhouse. Mm. You can also use an aquarium heater. Mm-hmm. So I could potentially have a 300-watt aquarium heater in there, have that running during the day, charged by the solar panels, then turn it off. Yep. Um, yeah. Mm. Awesome. Okay. Well, something to discover. Indeed. Mm. Yeah. Well, when you were talking just now about if it, if it overfills, it burps off um, methane-rich mm. gases. So is, do you see potential in this for you to potentially decant that surplus gas into like your traditional old bottle or some sort of storage? Yeah. I mean, that I seems like the logical next step. Yeah. Um, I don't know the the mechanism for that. Mm. It, it, no doubt an engineer would be able to yeah. do it. Because it does require compression to go into that bottle. It's not... Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, the unit I have is very low pressure. The, yeah. the 80 bags, 80 kilograms of sand on the top give you a good gas flow in your gas cooker, mm. um, but it's less than a conventional mains gas. Yep. Um, but there would be a way, you know, and who knows, this is one of the very few biogas units that are commercially available for kind of a suburban setting. Mm. So you would think that in coming years and decades there will be various uh, adaptations that will mm. perhaps have bigger gas bags or, mm. um, you know, things that you hook up to capture when you have surplus. Yep. The other thing that's interesting about learning to live with renewable energy is that you sometimes need to adjust your lifestyle to... Um, to adapt to the energy flows that are coming from from the sun or yeah. from your biogas unit. So if you have a lot of gas, you might cook the pasta. That takes you know mm. a long burn to simmer down the sauce. Mm. If you realise that you've only got a little bit, you might have a 10-minute stir-fry. Yes. And it's interesting yeah, yeah. to think yeah, about yeah. how the different forms of energy source can actually come to or re- require sort of lifestyle mm. shifts. Yeah. Well, a good friend of mine and a former guest on the show, um, Septuagenarian Plus Two today, I think, oh no, 71 today, Stephen Pepper, if you're listening, he has said the same because he, he had a, a converted school portable off-grid and he said that he became far more tuned into weather patterns because those were the days he could, if it was really sunny, he could run a washing machine and get everything mm-hmm. dry and um, he would really adjust his day and his week around, you know, quite literally, like if it had been overcast and... It, it's dark in winter at five o'clock. Well, it's bedtime at about six thirty. Mm-hmm. You know, and and those things. And he and he was quite content. And as you kind of alluding to, I mean, the, that sort of lower impact lifestyle. He he's quite fond of it. He sort of doesn't begrudge any of it. Mm. You know. Mm. So, hey, yeah. on the biogas, I imagine in some parts of the world they. I, well, I've always thought of them village scale or farm scale things where a lot of animal manures go in, but. Is there situations where you said at Werribee they collect biogas from human waste mm-hmm. um, at the sewage works? Mm-hmm. Is that a thing that's done around the world? It is. Um, on the small scale? There are sort of industrial systems and commercial systems that collect, say, the organic matter from agriculture mm-hmm. or, you know, capture, you know, use the animal manures or mm. um, even collect at a almost an industrial scale food waste. Mm. So there are those sort of systems occurring and it could be that that is a more efficient way to do it. Um, but, you know, in Australia where political action on some of these matters are so slow and almost paralysed, mm. it's sort of the burden is on the 
the culture, the grassroots space for some of this action because if it's not happening from the top down it has to emerge from from the, the from below and that's mm. where this um shows promise is that you know you can get some of these units and mm. produce biogas in your own backyard mm. yeah the little joel salatin voice it constantly sits on my shoulder that little libertarian voice of joel salatin says really go for this just don't wait for government to give you a tick. Just get into it. Yeah. So, like, it is an interesting aspect because there is no Home Biogas Act in Australia. Mm. Um, so it needs some more clarity. I've written to – I've made submissions both to the Victorian government and ACT. They're mm. both actually in the midst of public consultations about energy-to-waste systems. So I've yep. written to them uh, both – making a short statement saying, hey, look, here is this technology. Look what it can do. Um, it's safe. It, can, you know, it needs mm. to be respected as a combustible fuel, but mm. when used responsibly, it mm. provides a source to of decarbonising household energy consumption yeah. in a way that also diverts food from landfill, which, as you mentioned in your intro, when it biodegrades anaerobically, it creates methane and mm. which is the waste, wasted resource that mm. turns into a greenhouse problem. Absolutely. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You are on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR and we have been talking about biogas, that combination of methane and hydrogen sulphide. But is, is that how you say it? Um, that might be a tiny bit smelly, but you can cook your food with. No, you strip the smelly stuff mm-hmm. out, don't you? With Dr. Samuel Alexander, the founder of the Simplicity Institute, and he has a new essay co-authored with Joshua Floyd called Carbon Civilization and the Energy Descent Future. As the name suggests, it's very big picture, and it doesn't just look at the future, however. It looks at the past. Now... We really want to explore, I, I'm kind of thinking of this like a refresher for myself and maybe a primer for other people or, you know, we often talk about some of the issues surrounding what this essay is about and it very much informs our thinking here at Greening the Apocalypse. I feel like every time we decide on a, on a guest, it's more or less, we read your, we, this, your essay would, could be a foundational kind of like... <laughs> Not that I'd read it until yesterday, but it's, it, it encapsulates this kind of background thinking that we use to filter, oh, does what this guest and what they have to say, would that be important in the kind of future that you are describing? But before we get to the future, let's get to the past. And your essay is very much about understanding the world through the lens of energy. And we all kind of have this intuitive grasp of like, oh, well, to survive, we need to eat. We need an energy source. But we don't often apply that same thinking to the scale of civilizations or societies or even businesses, but you can apply that same thinking. You can always ask, what is the energy source coming in? What is the energy source that's been now degraded and turned into carbon dioxide and heat or something going out? And what, is, what does the nature of that energy source mean for the way that system, that civilization, or whatever it is, that business, how, how it's organised? And your essay goes way back, back in time, to the dawn of humans, mm. you know, mm. on the planet. Mm. What, what, what was the, you know, if we talk about hunter-gatherers, um, what was their energy source and how did that shape the way that their societies were organised? Mm. Well, I guess by looking back in history, we were trying to, as you say, look through the lens of energy and explore how that fundamental determinant of uh, society shapes and enables the form of life that can emerge. Mm. 
And um, we wanted to show through a, a brief analysis of the hunter-gatherer way of life that the limited energy sources and the nature of the energy sources that, that they had available determined the form of life, the, 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 the nature of the civilization that it, it, it was. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you looked through to the agricultural revolution, which can be considered a energy revolution as much as a revolution in food production. Mm. And that uh, energy surplus that agricultural society provided allowed the society to complexify and develop in a way that simply wasn't available when there wasn't that energy surplus. Mm. Um, I think grains are, besides fossil fuels, are the most energy dense form of natural material that, mm. or at least organic material mm. that there is. Mm. And that's what we focused on as an agricultural society, mm. wasn't it? Like grains. And they mm. store pretty well. Mm. And then comes the 18th century yeah. uh, with the emergence of the uh, steam engine and the technologies and mm. modes of production that uh, developed from that. Mm. And you have this um, industrial revolution that was fundamentally enabled by the access for the first time humans had to the extraordinary dense energy available in mm. oil, gas and coal. Yep. So I think you talk a little bit about complexity and how that has changed over those three eras. Yeah, well, I guess it's returning to the idea that energy uh, is the fundamental determinant of the, the type of society. Uh, if you don't have a lot of energy, you simply can't do some things when you get more energy, you can do more things. So mm. like even building a house or having complicated political institutions or globalised transport, mm. you know. Well, probably a major one as well within that is to, have, to maintain a standing military force to protect this surplus that you've generated as sure. well. So and even expand the boundaries to have to take in more, more energy. Land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, argu so arguably when – so if, if we go back to the hunter-gatherer era, most people could carry around all the tools they needed to survive. They needed people around them as well. You couldn't, mm -hmm. you couldn't really do it, go it alone in most, mm -hmm. most places. Mm -hmm. um, we were pretty robust. Apparently humans back then even had bigger brains because we had to navigate, um, you know, fend for ourselves in all these different ways and interact in social, um, intense social interactions where if you fucked it up and you got kicked out, you're most likely going to die. So you better be on to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when we, when we found, when, when we, you know, when there was the interglacial and all of a sudden climate stabilised about 8,000 years ago and all around the world spontaneously agriculture developed and we had this storable foodstuffs, as, um, then the well, you didn't have to fend for yourself and there was so much specialization happened and bushy mentioned standing armies until that point you couldn't really have that right no. mm. that is it goes back to the fact that you have a storable concentrated food source yeah and an energy surplus that um, allows what some of the anthropologists call non-food specialists yep. Yep. in hunter gatherer society almost everyone was yeah. a food specialist. Their job was to hunt or gather or hunt and gather. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there weren't this 10,000 social roles that we find mm. today. And mm. those, that complexification is only possible because fewer and fewer people need to be food specialists. Yeah. They say as few as 3% are now farmers in, yeah. in some developed nations, yeah. uh, allowing that diversification of social roles because of the energy surplus provided by mm. first agriculture and more significantly, mm. fossil fuels. Yeah, 
They certainly weren't lawyers back in hunter-gatherer times. There would have been equivalents no, in the a sense of... lawyer was a big stick back but they, in But they weren't... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. There was a lot... I think that in on the contrary, there was probably heaps of, like, complex negotiations and... But beyond um, that... Yeah, was well, yeah, there, there was a fallback. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but in a way, the stick got bigger in the agricultural mm. revolution, yet we were still living within the annual energy budget provided by that big, hot nuclear bomb in the sky and how much it... It came down and really fundamentally caused plants to grow. Mm-hmm. That changed in the Industrial Revolution. And how, do you have a sense of how much energy we are using now relative to pre-Industrial Revolution as a globe? Not so much in a ratio, but let me give, me give you one number to give you a sense of it. Today we consume about 95 million barrels of oil every day. Mm. And in one barrel of oil there is mm. the, human, the equivalent of about three years of human labour. Mm. 95 million barrels every day. So to think yeah. of... So in the sense of like hard physical labour. Yeah. Yeah. We had Richard Heinberg on the show last year and he talked about the concept of energy slaves. Exactly. Yes. So that's the idea that apparently in the, in the, the energy uh, demanding rich nations, you can, you can need as many as 200 energy slaves, so to speak, mm-hmm. in inverted commas, if we were to take away the energy source of fossil fuels. Yeah. If they were on a treadley bike generating electricity or something and to power our lifestyles. Yeah, there was a fascinating show in the UK a few years back where they had two households and one didn't know they were in an experiment <laughs> and they would get up and they were just asked to live, live, their, live their day and yeah. in the other household they had to try to supply the energy source to the household through uh, right. cycling. Yep. So when as little as turning on the toaster occurred in one household, there'd be like 10 people cycling furiously just to provide the toaster and then someone, you casually flick on a light and turn the TV on, stick a stereo on, turn some mm, lights, yeah. have a shower and suddenly you need, as I say, just yeah. a, a hundred or 200 people yeah. met, just to give you a sense of the, yeah, you yeah. know, the density yeah. of fossil fuels, which we, it's so easy and to take for granted. slaves require calories. And so forth. I mean, that's, a, that's the other side of the... Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about that, that energy surplus and, and the different areas that um, societies and civilizations have... Uh, that's, I mean, it's a different passage to go down. We'll touch on it in another show. But the, it, sometimes it's probably the luck of the draw on where you happen to be and what your soil happened to be capable of too that would shape the civilization and the people and therefore their response to mm. those high-yield high fossil fuel energies when they came along. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the better the soil and the climate, the bigger your your civilization and empire could be. Mm -hmm. But we have something that just completely dwarfs those enormous Roman grain stores in the form of fossil fuels. And what makes them different is that they are unsustainable and running out. Even, you know, we could, we're arguably about halfway through the recoverable reserves of the, you know, what's, what's out there in terms of oil, gas and, and coal. So we should, what we want to do when we come back is explore just the argument that you make so clearly and thoroughly in the essay of why we're, there's a very strong likelihood that we're going to have to get used to using less and less year on year rather than this multi-generational experience of having more and more year on year. The process you call energy descent. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're on Green the Apocalypse on 3RRR as we continue our fascinating conversation with Dr. Samuel Alexander, the 
founder of the Simplicity Institute. We've been talking biogas and then we talked about some really big picture, the history of how energy has influenced the evolution, well, not the evolution, but the cultural evolution of the human race and our societal structures. And we sort of came to the point where, oh, well, we're currently using more energy per capita and as a globe than any time in human history with the, since we've, you know, we now uh, just use incredible amounts of fossil fuels per person and as a globe. You have written this uh, essay which makes an argument that we're going to have a little bit less year on year uh, in the not-too-distant future perhaps, not putting a date on it, but uh, one of the things that you focus on is oil, oil being I think 40-ish percent of the energy used as a globe, maybe 35? A little bit less, yeah. Yep. Um, but the one used for most transport, how much oil are we finding relative to how much are we using at a global scale at the moment? Well, the last couple of years have been the lowest oil discoveries in about eight decades. So yep. I think we're now finding about one-tenth of what we're using. Mm-hmm. So in much the same way as if a household was spending ten times as much as it was earning, you know, there is a Sooner financial a crunch going to yep. wait. So too with energy, we are um, finding far less oil than we are using year on year. Mm-hmm. Now, we, there were lots of discoveries historically, so we're not running out of oil as such. Yep. But there will come a time uh, in coming years, perhaps decades, where uh, supply of oil will no longer be able to keep up with demand. Yep. Um, and this is... So we're not necessarily saying the peak of oil, but just that demand is continuing to rise and supply is struggling to keep up. And I th- think, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the challenges that we're facing is not that we're going to run out suddenly, as you say, but that what's left of oil reserves and fossil fuels in general tends to be further away from cities, uh, lower quality, you know, we're turning more and more to tar sands and fracking to make up for the conventional, the sweeter, easier to get um, and easier to process Mm. oil. Which are both more expensive from a financial perspective and an energetic perspective. So they have what's called declining energy return on investment. And I guess the key worry or concern about the peak oil position is, uh, is that historically we've been growing our economies because we've had this... Growing energy source. And cheap energy source. And to the extent that the supply of oil or fossil energy overall begins to stagnate while demand keeps going up, that's going to put, like Economics 101 tells us, that that's going to increase the price. So Mm. uh, the concern is that oil gets expensive and it's Mm. not just any other commodity. When it gets expensive, we can't just say, oh, let's use less oil. Like if milk got really Mm. expensive or tea got really expensive, we might drink more coffee Mm. and it wouldn't affect our lifestyle. But if oil or our energy foundations get really expensive, we can't just use something else. It's that fundamental to our modes of economy. Um, And when it gets expensive, it obviously sucks expenditure away from the rest of the economy and that's where the debt defaults come in and it can cause recessions. And so that's one of the concerns is that we've become addicted, dependent on this fossil energy source mm. that is, by virtue of its nature, 
finite. So you said that um, it's going to price would tend to go up as as uh, supply can't keep up with demand. That seems simple economics for sure. But in two thousand and fourteen, uh, the price of oil dropped, and I think peak oil took a hit to its credibility. The whole concept. Yeah, look, it's a complicated, long story. So, uh, in the first decade of the century, oil went from around twenty dollars to it peaked at one hundred and forty-seven bucks in July of two thousand and eight. Before, just before just, the financial crisis, exactly, and possibly contributing to it, exactly. Mm. And then it crashed as the economy crashed in terms of oil price, and then from two thousand and eight to two thousand, uh, well, there was two thousand eleven to two thousand fourteen, it averaged more than a hundred dollars, which mm. As I say, historically, it averaged about $20 a barrel and it went up to averaging over $100. Now, when you're consuming 90 million barrels a day, Mm. that difference is huge, like trillions of dollars. Especially for less rich countries. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and but, there, there were food riots and everything, you know, that led to Arab Spring and stuff with high food prices, mm. which because so much of our system depends on um, fossil fuels that, it, that the prices reached their way into food, mm. would it be fair to say? And, you know, the other aspect of Economics 101 is that when things get expensive, it both disincentivizes consumption mm-hmm. and it also incentivizes more production. And that's what we've seen. So both from the supply angle, uh, the high prices incentivized the, the fracking boom in the states in particular, yep. uh, as well as putting economic pressure on people to rethink their addiction to oil so far mm. as they can. And both of those dynamics together has contributed to the, the price yeah. crash. So what, that's the market working itself out in a way, which is what you would hope if you weren't concerned about, you know, well-being um, of climate people. change. Yeah, and, climate. Yeah. 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 And the question is how long can that continue? You know, uh, there are deep uncertainties about how much shale oil is going to sort of keep prices low. I think we need to do a whole show on that because yeah. that is, um, yeah, and, and you talk about it in there in, in your essay just how quickly um, a single well loses production relative to old conventional oil. But um, and, and there's a lot of talk about this I've been reading on the web about you know how it is a pretty short-term boom, the fracking boom in the U.S., Sure, at least deeply uncertain. So at $50, it's not clear. At $50 a barrel, it's not clear that the frackers can make a lot of money or any money. And in the last couple of years, 134 or so uh, oil companies in the States have gone bust. Mm. So... When if, if the shale boom does go bust, yep. then you're going to find more pressure on the oil markets and the price is likely to go up again and mm. then that's going to have those disruptive effects on the economy. Are we getting better and more efficient at finding and mining oil? Well, as I say, in 2016, 2017, we've found less oil than ever before, okay. uh, at least in recent history, like the last eight decades or so. Yep. Um, so and that's a function of the fact that we have been consuming vast amounts now for the first oil well was dug in 1859. And since then, we just realised that it was this extraordinary, cheap, abundant, dense energy source and we've created a society that is now dependent on it. It's a very short time, isn't it? 1859 to, mm. you know, uh, I'm not sure when it'll run out. but it is it, 100 and, 
potentially sure. a resource like that in 150, 60 years. Sure. And my co-author of this manuscript, Josh Floyd, has developed this beautiful phrase, beyond this brief anomaly. So he's got a blog uh, by that name, which I encourage all energy enthusiasts to read. It's a fantastic, clearly written, rigorous statement of, of the energy situation, the relationship between energy and society. Mm. Um, and just the idea of beyond, you know, a brief anomaly, like it's easy to forget how unique this fossil inheritance is and we're just spending it like mad people. Yeah. It's, uh, I think when we talked to Richard Heinberg, we talked about we're like the... The rich heiress, I don't know why it has to be gendered, the rich heir who, um, part, you know, partied with, um, with, with the inheritance and now is sort of waking up with uh, a little bit of vom on the T-shirt and, go, and it's like, oh, the money's gone and we have to, sure. we're, we're going to have to get back to earning a wage, sure. regular wage. Um, James Kunstler, one of the peak oil uh, heavyweights, used the phrase that we've, this has been the greatest misallocation of resources in the history of the world and that is without... True, you know. Building, without, without, yeah, he was yeah. talking specifically about building urban, well, suburban infrastructure, yeah. which is so dependent. We've created a society which is dependent on fossil fuels to function, and yet you're saying that we're going to have to decrease our use of them. There's going to be challenges in that. And the other big argument you make there in the – and it's kind of a – we, climate change gets a lot more press than peak oil does. Peak oil, it's not that fashionable to talk about anymore, but if you were to look at how society is shaping itself, how industry is shaping itself, it seems like it's taking peak oil much more seriously than climate change because we are transitioning to these more climate or carbon-intensive fuels like um, f- fracked um, oil and gas and like tar sands. Ah, so That's what do you got there, Bushy? You pulled up um, uh, beyond this brief anomaly. I'm just going to put a link to it through our Facebook page. Brilliant. That's the blog, is it, Sam? That is. Yeah. So even if um, even if there wasn't a peak oil, we to to live within a carbon budget, what's life going to look like if we were going to do it for ethical reasons? If we were to take climate change seriously, mm. yeah. So the notion of a carbon budget uh, implies that we actually have more fossil fuels than we can burn for climate reasons, you know. So mm. peak oil is saying that we it's finite. Eventually it's going to run out if we keep consuming it at this pace. Mm. Um, and climate's saying that, well, we've got to limit even what's available. And this gets really serious when you start looking at the, the most recent carbon budget analyses, especially if we take the 1.5 degree carbon budget mm. seriously, as stated in the Paris Agreement in 2015. So we're talking about, you know, currently we're emitting f- 40 gigatons a year of carbon into the atmosphere. Um, at some of the carbon budget analyses, the stricter ones are saying that we could be blowing that budget in four years. Now, given how challenging or impossible it would be to fully decarbonise the global economy in four years, the incentive has been for mm. to explore what are called negative emissions technologies, mm. um, including coal capture and storage and just planting up vast areas of land with carbon sequestering trees and you know exploring algae and seaweed modes of sequestering carbon um, all important and probably all will need to play some role but mm. what it's doing is deferring the challenge of decarbonization it's saying mm. we can burn more fossil fuels yeah. now because we're going to sequester more in the future and it's a very dangerous approach because most of those 
negative emissions technologies are untested, very difficult to scale, potentially uneconomic. Mm. Um, or one-time only hits like planting forests because once they're fully grown, they're no longer drawing down much carbon. Sure. Mm. Um, you know, there's a notion called BECS, which stands for Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Storage. <laughs> so they sort of plant the, plant the trees, yeah. sequester the carbon, cut them down, burn them in an energy-generating um, power plant and capture the carbon emissions from it. All nice in theory, but uh, whether it can play out in practice is, is the gamble that we're in the midst of making. Well, Indeed. to anticipate listeners' uh, concerns with this whole issue, where we're saying, you're going to have to live with less. Um, and, well, or just to... I mean, it's, it's a, we haven't presented a complete argument here for that, and a large part of that is that the idea that alternative energy sources can pick up the slack. We don't have time to discuss it tonight, but you do cover it in your excellent essay, uh, which is called, again, Carbon Civilization in the Energy Descent Future, which you've co-authored with Joshua Floyd. When's that going to be on the internet? Not sure. A month, maybe? Two? Yeah. <laughs> Still in draft form, but it's damn good. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We are just wrapping up another edition of Greening the Apocalypse and uh, there's a little bit of stuff to talk about. You also were saying we didn't, we were, we were just, when we were in the break, that you're actually, with the biogas system that we were talking about during the show, you're actually saving money. Yeah, well, we were able to disconnect from gas, yeah. which means we're no longer paying service fees as well as we're now getting free biogas. And we're keen gardeners and fruit tree growers. We've been imp- traditionally been importing some manures and fertilisers each year. Now Betty, our biogas unit, is providing more than we need. If people want to read your article about that or find out other things that you've written, where do they go? Uh, you can ch- check out the review at Simplicity Institute, uh, uh, simplicitycollective.com or simplicityinstitute.org. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.